Welcome, everybody, to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is a show dedicated to telling the story of coastal advocacy and shining a light on people that are being kind to the planet. Each episode, you'll meet a person or group of people that are driven to leave this watery world in a better place than they found it. I am thrilled to introduce you um, to my guest today because he is on an epic quest to protect the high seas and put a stop to plastic pollution. And I know that this sounds like quite the task, but his efforts are really generating a major following that continues to grow. Um, and people are really taking notice of what he and his organization are doing and jumping on board to change their behavior and be better stewards of the planet. And listeners, don't hate me, but I'm going to have to leave you on a cliffhanger for a second. And the identity of my guest will remain shrouded in secrecy until after we hear a brief message from our sponsors. As always, we want to ta- uh, thank our sponsor, Dune Doctors, out of Pensacola, Florida. This is a Dune restoration and consulting uh, firm. They they work all along the Gulf shoreline, so all the way from the Texas shoreline all the way around over to the shoreline there in the Gulf side of Florida. They have you covered. Uh, they do great work. They are a hub vendor. Uh, and uh, they're just a great sponsor. We're so happy that they came on board to, to support Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Yep, so if you've got uh, a need for dune restoration and dune management with natural native dune plants, give them a call. Frederick Barrasat, Dune Doctors at dunedoctors.com. We'd also like to thank TI Coastal Services out of Wilmington, North Carolina, Uh TI Coastal Services is a just exquisite uh, uh, coastal engineering firm. They work there along the Carolina shoreline. If you've listened to uh, Peter Ravella's Local Control podcast with Chris Gibson, yep. uh, you will have you'll know a little bit about the care and responsibility that TI Coastal Services uh, takes with when they approach a project. Yep, and uh, TICoastalServices.com, Chris Gibson, uh, Barrier Island Restoration, Dune Restoration, Ports and Waterways, uh, Boutique Firm, specialty, specialty Guys, First Rate, TICoastalServices.com. I am joined today by the Development Director for the Terramar Project, Brian Urisitz. Brian has conducted research about marine protected areas and worked with the Global Finprint Project, helping survey sharks and rays that live around the world's tropical reefs. He was a fisheries observer with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which many of us lovingly refer to as NOAA. Um, and during that time, he was on board commercial fishing vessels where he collected data on fisheries operations in the Northeast United States. Um, so honestly, he's had so much experience already that it's hard to believe that he's younger than I am, um, even if it is just barely younger than I am. Um, so welcome to the show, Brian. Yeah, thanks for the awesome intro, Jenna. Yeah, super stoked to be here. Um, you know, um, that you, you hit the nail on the head there. You know, I definitely, um, you know, had a lot of experience in the field already. Um, I, I really... Um, I, I don't like to waste much time, you know. I feel like I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm in my prime. Like we we are in our prime right now, and I want to um, have the biggest impact that I possibly can for our planet and in my work, um, you know, while I'm 
right now. I'm 25. You know what I mean? This is this is the time. And uh, and a lot of youth today, I think, are really stepping up and, and you know, stepping up to the challenge of protecting our oceans and, and you know, in their work and in their uh, personal and professional life. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. So before we jump into your work with Terramar Project, I always like to give the listeners an opportunity to get to know the human behind our guests and all of the great work that people are doing in this conservation space. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, starting with where you're from, where you went to school, um, and what inspires you about the ocean? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I grew up, uh, you know, in Long Island. Uh, you know, uh, I got the, my family is super Italian, um, you know, grew up, I was lucky enough to grow up right by the water. So I grew up uh, fishing and actually, I taught myself how to surf when I was pretty young. Um, and I pride myself on that because anyone, actually anyone who's looking to get out and, and start surfing and start a water sport, just get a board and go do it. That's that's the way that I kind of uh, picked it up when, you know, when I was young. And, and that's it really inspired me just to follow my whole career path. You know, uh, you know I, I picked that up when I was in high school, you know, kind of young and then um, follow, followed up when I was I, I went to New York University. So I went to school in New York City. Um, which was an interesting perspective, just being kind of far, you know, a, a little bit far from the ocean. And, uh, you know, I, I studied, I kept on my track with marine sciences. I learned more and more each year as I was going. Was uh, that where you studied at NYU? Uh, yeah, marine conservation and policy. And I really, I was lucky enough to work with uh, this awesome professor over there, Jennifer Jaquette. She was like my inspiration to to really not uh, follow a field of like marine biology and hard sciences, but what I kind of learned while I was at NYU was that you you can get involved in marine conservation and actually have a bigger impact for saving marine life uh, by working with policy and um, like in the in the in the policy field in the working with socioeconomics. You know, it's it's more than just the hard sciences and facts of like biology and, and physics and, and chemistry, you know what I yeah. mean? Like there's, there's way more ways that you can uh, get involved in the field. And so I saw that, as, you know, that, that's what inspired me at NYU. And I kind of, I, I took that with me and I decided that, you know, the, the next best thing in this field, uh, it, it, it is a tough field to get a, a, you know, a solid career, make a career out of. You have to differentiate yourself from everyone. Mm -hmm. And so what I decided was the next best step was to get a master's degree. And so uh, I, you know, stuck around New York. I went to Stony Brook University to get my uh, master's in marine conservation policy. And there, you know, I just I followed up. I, I got more experience working with Global Finprint Project, uh, you know, getting working hands on kind of in the field with these can you explain groups. the fin finprint yeah. project that's like a, a tongue twister <laughs> yeah yeah right um no so the, the finprint project they it was super cool so they they took gopros and just dropped them down in these things called broods a baited remote underwater video and it's just this like super novel technique to collect data on sharks and rays and coral reefs. So what they did was I, I was in charge of a team of 30 interns who would watch an hour long video from this GoPro and count and identify all the different, uh, you know, top predator species. So they were really looking for groupers, uh, sharks and, and rays. And, you know, that I so I led that data collection and, you know, it was, it was, it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that it's, you, you can take like pretty cheap ways to collect data and, um, 
I don't know, like there's so many diff different approaches to conducting marine science that are available nowadays. And like they just got funding from GoPro and, you know, they created these super easy to put together and, and um, kind of accessible uh, just brews out of like a brick and, you know, with which was a. Uh, strapped to a GoPro and definitely yeah. and I, I think that's important work that uh, is getting done because protecting and understanding the populations of predator species is such a major sign into the health of an entire ecosystem yeah um, so definitely good to know that that work is being done out there and that there are corporate sponsorships that are coming in like what you mentioned with GoPro yeah um, and some funding that's being allocated toward that work just for us to even develop a deeper understanding of, um, you know, what the populations are like out there for those top apex predator species. Yeah. yeah. And those are, those are the species that, um, you know, there's facts out there that I think it's like 80% of the top predators. I, I think that's a fact. I'm not totally sure right now, but um, <laughs> we'll check that out. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll check that out. <laughs> but I, it's something like 80% of the, the top predatory species in our oceans are disappearing. And, you know, that's mostly from this phenomenon called fishing down the food web where we target you know the the ocean's top predators and that's just you know there's a demand for them and like like tuna species like most tuna species are you know endangered or they're they're on their way out and it's because that's just the the way that demand consumer demand works but um that kind of lead, leads me into what what happened after my master's degree right so uh after i got my master's i was in this interesting predicament of um you know what what where where do i fit in how like i i personally wanted to get out on the water, right? I, I thought, um, how do I differentiate myself from everyone else that, that's in the field, right? And how do I legitimize myself, you know, because I, I've studied, you know, boats, I've studied fisheries for years now, and I've never actually been on a commercial fishing boat. So that's kind of where I saw the opportunity of being a, a fisheries observer with NOAA. And I figured, you know, I, I've heard it's a tough job, which it definitely is. And, you know, you get some really interesting experience out there. But that's how you're really going to see all these problems that you learn about in the books firsthand. You know what I mean? Is by talking to like just going out, talking to fishermen, living the life, uh, understanding the way that they think, the way that they work. And that's that's how you really I, I think it's it's very important for people in our field to um, get physically out there, you know, and, and see see the problems of overfishing, the even how climate change is affecting these fishermen, how, uh, you know, the, the pollution that they pull up, you know, on their nets just on a day's trawl, you know, that, that kind of stuff, seeing it firsthand is very more impactful and it, it kind of teaches you going forward. Yeah. And fully understanding what the life of a fisherman entails and yeah. developing relationships with them. And I often see um, this sort of butting of heads between the commercial fishing industry and the the conservation community, um, which I have always found fascinating because many of our common goals and the things that we're striving for are similar. Um, so I, I definitely want to, in a moment, dive into some of your your firsthand accounts of what it was like getting out on the water um, and getting to know some of these commercial fishermen. Um, 
But also I wanted to circle back around to a comment that you made about your decision to go to grad school, because it's something that I can relate to as well. Um, And I'm wondering if you ran into a similar situation that I did in that um, I did my undergrad work and I had a series of internships at a wildlife refuge down in Virginia, um, then was able to secure a position at the Chesapeake Bay program as a fellow. Um, But then when I started to look at what my opportunities were following that fellowship, um, I started to feel very limited in what Uh, doors were going to open for me in the conservation field without having some sort of higher degree. Um, Did that feeling uh, play into your decision to get a master's degree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I would say, I mean, my my decision to get a master's degree was because I started looking for jobs, you know, right out of undergrad. And I noticed that everything, it's crazy because you'll see everything requires it. it, It's like a a entry level job that requires three years of experience or something like that. And, uh, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but the, my logically in my head, the best thing to do was to go quickly to get a master's degree because I didn't want to get stuck in a PhD program for, you know, five, six years. And to me, there's always time to go back and do that. And I think it's more important right after undergrad to kind of, uh, get out into the field um like the master's program that i was a part of i knew it was gonna it was a one-year program so it was pretty quick i just wanted to get in and out and have kind of a little bit more legitimacy to myself you know what i mean but even even after that master's degree it was still you know it's still a competitive market out there you know and you definitely still feel limited but um i would say the best the best thing to do is just to differentiate yourself from everyone else so one thing actually that i did while i was getting my master's that I found helped me was I I just did this sales job working for a solar company, like going door to door. And the skills that I learned during that, um, if you can, if you learn how to sell something, like you can sell yourself to, to a employee, you know, in in an interview, Mm -hmm. like, um, the skills that you learn just being able to talk to someone nowadays, that's like a very valuable skill that people look for. You know what I mean? Like, uh, when I'm interviewing people now for, you know, internships or, you know, whatever it is. Um, that's, that's a skill. Like I really value someone who can communicate with, you know, other people. Um, and, and that I think really differentiated me in terms of, you know, uh, when I applied for Terramar project, when I applied for other jobs, I saw a little bit more success just because of the way I was able to interact and, uh, and also just to, also to sell my story as a a fisheries observer, because that, you know, that in itself is a really, um, good good experience to be able to talk to people about in interviews and um again it legitimizes yourself you know yeah you're out on the boat you're and and you know you you come in you know how to like to talk with these people and and kind of sell that experience and and people respect that yeah i i hear that a hundred percent i actually got my undergrad in um at university of maine in communication and journalism um mainly because when i was Going through my undergrad, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I definitely fell in that group of people that went to college because that was what you were supposed to do. Um, And then settled after changing my major about four or five times on communication and journalism because of that exact point that you just made where everybody is going to need strong communicators. Um, And then you you specifically, when you start looking, as I've uh, made my path down the conservation, um, into that conservation field, um, science communication is key. 
right now. Being able to take that complex data and that complex research and uh, make it relatable to whoever you're talking to um, really is a strength. Um, But then I realized at that point after I before I had gone and got my master's um, that I needed to be a little bit more specific. So I know that you're mentioning to differentiate yourself, um, but I also think choosing something um, that is relevant to the, the path that you're trying to go down. So I ended up getting my master's in natural resource management from Virginia Tech because I started to see this niche position um, and need for strong communicators in the environmental field. So I thought, hey, let's go get um, a little bit deeper understanding and knowledge about natural resources and then be able to pair that with what I what I learned in my undergrad. Um, and that has fortunately worked out for me. But yeah, I think the moral of, of this whole part of the conversation is that if nothing else, work on your communication skills. Yeah. Um, and, you know, try to figure out why people are the way they are yeah. and and how can you relate to them and what are the best ways to get that message about conservation across or whatever you're talking about across. You could, you could have the, like the best solution to save the world. Right. But if you can't communicate that to, to everyone else, nothing's going to happen. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And that's, that's a, I, I find that key with science because, you know, when you think of hard sciences, you know, you don't think of um, people being able to really, uh, you know, they use a lot of jargon. It's, it's tough to read sometimes. So like if you, if you have that skill of being able to understand the science and then put it in layman's terms, you know, that's how you reach way, way more people in a, in a much wider audience. So I agree. And and one um, one little thing I wanted to add about it, this was a really good piece of advice that I actually received. It's kind of crude, but um, uh, from one of my professors was that some of, you know, a lot of people think that getting a Ph.D. is like the like like the gold star in um the marine sciences right but what she you know what what the advice that i got was that some some of actually like the dumbest people out there um you know have phds because uh in in my opinion I, I've, I don't know i've kind of run into this where people who have a phd you end up very narrow uh minded in in your work you know you focus so heavily on one subject matter that i don't know the 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 world the way that, you know, the way that the world works or like everything else that's happening around you kind of isn't in your scope. You know what I mean? So uh, that I, I think it's it's good to get out there before you get a Ph.D. and kind of see the rest of the world because you're you're that's a dedication. You're going there for five, six years. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So just just a little career advice, I, I think. Yeah, I, I yes. want to throw that and out And anybody there. out there, we do love you if you have a yeah, PhD. Yeah, that too. We value your intelligence. Yeah. We're not coming at you. We, we think that you are amazing and all of that hard work is valued. But what we're trying to say is that is a serious commitment. And that's something that I have I've thought about before. Um, I've weighed the options of going to get my PhD as well. Um, And I've heard this from a number of people that are considering it is um, giving up, you know, five years of work experience for five years of that education research field work um, may or may not be right for you. So it's just important to um, make sure that it's, it's the right, I mean, it's a serious commitment. So, um, taking the time to make sure that it's what you want to do um, 
And that could simply be traveling around, volunteering, um, you know. So pros and cons to each. We love our PhDs yeah. out there. We love our non-PhDs. Um, yeah, not, everybody. Not a shot <laughs> yeah. at, at people with PhDs, but um, just I just you know that, I thought that was good advice that I you yeah. know, stuck with me. So it I resonated just to share with that. you yeah, for exactly. sure. Yeah, um, I mean it is a very specific. If you're getting your PhD, it's going to be very topic specific. Oh, so yeah. you Definitely. got you got to eat, sleep, and breathe it. Yep, yep, and that's that's. People get the people that I talk to who are in PhD programs. They do get frustrated, you know, um, and you know some of them might wish that they took a different route or were working in the in the field instead of you know kind of stuck in university. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've seen a number of programs come up lately too that are not necessarily so research intensive, um, and. I'm now thinking I should probably get like a PhD student on my show to talk about what the inner workings of that look like because yeah. um you know you hear so much about the publisher parish um challenge that so many people face um I would love to know from people so if you're listening you can reach out to us on Facebook too and let us know um if that's still very much so the vibe of academia or if things are sort of opening up um to be less research intensive um so Brian now I would love to hear you clearly are so drawn to the ocean whether it's surfing your education your experience as a fisheries observer what inspires you about the ocean like what is it that draws you to this line of work Yeah that's I mean that's that's a really good question I think it's it's kind of like a an innate thing I mean to be honest because I I first you know developed my love for the ocean when I was very young and uh, it was through fishing, actually, which I think, pe- you know, people in ma- in the marine science field, uh, there is that that clash between fishermen and scientists, right? Like some people that are super hardcore environmentalists really despise fishing, but I think that it's a sport that can really um, turn you into like the biggest ocean advocate out there. Some some fishermen that I know that are recreational guys or commercial guys, they just have a love for the ocean. You know what I mean? They, they want to be out there every day. That's why they do what they do. And fishing for me was, is what, you know, gave me that first spark and just being outside, you know, uh, just the nostalgia of like waking up early at sunrise to go, you know, out on the boat, to go catch a couple fish, just like understanding the ecosystem through catching these fish. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that you, you put out this bait and this kind of, this certain type of fish eats that bait. You kind of learn the ecosystem that that you're surrounded by at like a young age and so that's really what sparked my interest you know when I was young and then I uh I just went surfing once I was lucky enough uh I had a family friend that took me out um on a trip to California and like after it's kind of crazy so surfers it's it's funny listening to someone who surfs try and explain what surfing is like because <laughs> we end up using a lot of crazy slang and, and terms and, and uh, sound effects, you know, <laughs> a lot of sound effects. Um, but one, one thing that is consistent is it's so tough to actually explain what it's like to ride a wave because it's like no one can understand it unless you actually do it. And it's the coolest, most awesome, incredible, like experience that you can ever have and it's just like it's pure adrenaline and like connecting with nature you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like you're you're in the ocean you're in nature like you you don't know what's going on underneath you what kind of fish you're swimming around you'll see like you know maybe a dolphin if you're lucky or like a sea turtle pop up and 
like sur- surfing as compared to fishing is like it's it's more of like a holistic experience kind of i don't know and that's that's the best that i could explain but that's that's why i'm so motivated to do what i do and you know i knew i knew since i was super young you know after i went fishing i knew i wanted to be a marine biologist and really what changed is that um as i went through school and my experiences wanting to be a marine biologist turned into wanting to be a conservationist uh like study conservation biology, uh, evidence-based conservation, it turned more into, I don't want to study the fish. I want to study how to save it all. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of where like that motivation stems from. And like um, you really, w- when you're in this field, you def- I mean, you'll, you'll be able to relate to this. Like you're kind of all in, you know what I mean? You're, you understand um, what, what you're giving up by, you know, being a marine conservationist, you know, you, you're going to work like odd jobs, you're going to work odd hours, you know, um, but, it, you know, you'll get to travel around a lot. It's, it's definitely, you're, you're kind of all in, but it, you've always known that you're going to be all in, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah. And I, I always love asking my guests about what that inspiration is, because I've been finding that so many of them have, they either have, I'm seeing this split. It's like, they either have this like one moment that stands out in their mind where they, it was like the like ocean, like slapped them in the face and they're like, whoa, like this is my calling. This is what I need to do. You know, someone's developing something over here on this plot of beach that was my favorite place to go as a kid. Now I'm so mad that I'm going to dedicate my entire life to saving it. And then others have these continual experiences of going out and just enjoying the outdoors and the marine life and the wildlife um, that has over time developed this sense of stewardship that is really strong within them and has driven them into the field um, that they're in. And um, so I feel like that's that's definitely a bottom line is that it's so important to get out and start having those experiences early and just going straight to the source. Um, and not everybody is fortunate enough to be able to have public access or go out on a boat or learn how to surf. Um, so that's something I personally hope um you know, as a conservation community. And I know that there are tons of groups out there that are working on public access and environmental education and bringing people out into the field. Um, but that that's super important because that's something I've heard a number of ocean advocates cite now in their own personal stories is yeah. just having the privilege of being able to go out onto the water yeah. um, is, is huge. Oh, yeah. No, like, I'll, I'll tell you, like, I'm, I'm a fish, you know what I mean? Like, and, I, I, and that, um, it, I, I was lucky enough to experience that at such a young age and, and it's literally shaped every part of my life. You know what I mean? That now I, I like, I am at home when I'm at the beach or in the water, you know? And to, to kind of add to your point about, um, getting people for, you know, getting more people into the water and kind of experiencing that. Um, when I traveled recently to Barbados, I did it on a, a, a working travel trip. You know, I, I kind of set it up. It was really nice. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful Caribbean island down there. But most of the population in Barbados doesn't actually know how to swim. And it's incredible because they're this Caribbean island, beautiful coral reefs everywhere, sea turtles. They, they live off the, you know, the, the fisheries out there. They, they live off the island, you know what I mean? But so many people actually don't know how to swim. And what a lot of the groups down there are doing, and I was fortunate enough to, to kind of be there with, with them while they did this, they're, 
they, they have every year a, a big joint effort by the, a lot of the scuba shops, the, uh, the recreational sector there to get all the locals in the water, give them, give them snorkels, give them fins and let them see it firsthand. Because if you don't, you know, it's, it's not for everyone, right? But if you don't ever get out there and try it, you know, who knows, maybe it's going to change your life like it changed mine and, mm-hmm. and yours, you know what I mean? So I think that's, that's a really powerful way to promote conservation for the future because, you know, the future is the youth mm-hmm. and getting more people underwater to actually like see what's going on out there. You know, if you go for a swim uh, right in Barbados, you'll see some of the plastic problems, you know, you'll, you'll see some of the problems with water quality, but you'll also see some of the incredible, like you'll see sea turtles just, you know, they're, they're fortunate enough. They're like a, they have a huge sea turtle population. And, you know, you'll, you'll, if you're lucky, you'll see one of those and that, you know, that in itself will just change your life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Those so I, firsthand experiences and connections are incredible. Yeah. Um, and like you said, sometimes life-changing. And then circling back to your experience with, with fishing and surfing, um, you know, the hunting and fishing community, they are some of the biggest funders of conservation efforts um, yeah. in our country, which I definitely need to give a shout out for because I know that sometimes they get a bunch of flack from some really extreme um, conservation groups. Um, and that honestly could be an entire podcast in itself, just talking about hunting and fishing and wildlife management. Um, but for those licenses, um, and for them to be able to continue to enjoy the fisheries or the wildlife, nature, um, you know, I think that people that enjoy hunting and fishing fully understand that they need to take care of that environment and put inve- and invest it either uh, with their time or their money um, so that they can continue to do the thing that they love. Yeah. I, I agree entirely with you there. I, I think that um, per, personally, um, this might be a side note, but with with Terramar Project and what I really try and push other non-for-profits you know, or marine conservation groups to do is to not preach to the choir anymore, to get more of these um, these hunting, fishing, wildlife groups on board with your efforts because those are the kind of people who are out there every day and can contribute valuable data. They can contribute their experiences and it's really, really important to hear their story because they, you know, they can be the strongest oppositions to what you're doing or they can be completely on board with you. Like mm-hmm. um, there was actually a really interesting uh, event that came up and you're, you're familiar with this uh, right off New York's coast. There was a problem where um, the fish oil industry, which is based out of Virginia, was sending really big purse-staining fishing boats off of New York's uh, shores to, to fish for Menhaden, which is like the, the forage fish or the base of the food web in New yeah, York. Yeah, so if you um, if you take fish oil supplements, you're, you're consuming Menhaden, which are these tiny little forage fish. Yeah, and, and what happened that, that, that was so interesting was that the, the local recreational fishing community got so on board with um, the efforts to stop this this industrial fishing off the shore um, that they they worked with like uh, some of the marine mammal conservation groups because um, they were worried that you know the whales might stop coming up this way if the if their food source is overfished and you know some of the most vocal people that you know they created videos they created online petitions were the the local fishing community and mm-hmm. so I thought that was like a very interesting example of um, you know how these these kind of people can get you know really on board and how they can be like this 
awesome tool in in conservation. Absolutely. And, you know, they have a very loud voice because they're so passionate about the the environment that they like to recreate on. Um, So bridging that that gap between conservation groups and fishing groups is so important. Um, and then just to clarify, cause I know that I use the term forage fish and then realize that some listeners oh, yeah. might not necessarily um, be familiar with that term. Forage fish just means those really small fish like a menhaden, um, sardines. sardines that you see larger predators uh, foraging on. So those big bait balls that you might see on social media on videos that go viral of, sharks and dolphins and whales, you know, swimming through these really tight, balled up groups of tiny fish. Those are what we're referring to when we talk about forage fish. Um, So I also want to segue. We're still going to talk about fish, but I am so fascinated about your experience as a fisheries observer. Yeah. Um, And I would love to hear um, what are some of the most memorable moments that you had out on the water and that you had through your role as a, a NOAA fisheries observer? Oh, definitely. So, I mean, there was there was a whole lot of memorable moments, good and bad. Um, I'll start with one of the, the coolest things I ever saw. Um, I, I had never seen like a super pod of dolphins before. But, you know, when you go far enough offshore, seeing like hundreds of dolphins just following your boat, just it's absolutely mind blowing. It's incredible to see firsthand like these just a huge pod of wild dolphins. That was one of the really cool things I saw. And another uh, really cool experience was I was, you know, you'd work all all day, all night, just uh, you get like four hours of sleep every now and then. Um, and I was working this one night shift and I was just finishing up my data collection. Every, all the other crew went back in. It was, a, it was a completely flat and clean night, right? There was no wind blowing. The ocean was completely still. And the because of the light from the boat, you could see down in the in the ocean column for like hundreds and hundreds of feet. And I look over the edge because I was throwing over some of the, the bycatch that we caught, which is the fish that are discarded because um, they don't want to keep them. And that, that's the data that I was collecting was what fish were being thrown over. And I see these fish start to sink down and I see this huge white animal just kind of swooping around on like maybe 300 feet down beneath the boat or something like that. And I'm like, oh, is that a, is that a great white or is that a shark? Like, uh, let me see. Let me, I'm, I'm going to keep looking at this thing. And it slowly came up and it was just eating the fish that I was throwing over. And it, it pops its head up and it's the, it was this big, uh, it's a Riso's dolphin. This, uh, it's like a white dolphin. And it just pops its head up, you know, it spy hops right next to the boat. And it, I swear to God, it looked me in the eye. <laughs> and that's how Brian found his spirit animal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That that was that was just a, a unforgettable experience. Like I, I can never forget that one. But um, I, and then some of some of the more interesting ones that were kind of negative. You know what I mean? That stick with you, being out there in like crazy conditions. You know, ten foot seas. Like really seeing what these people work every day in. You know what I mean? It's it's crazy. It's the most dangerous job in the world. Uh, I think next to being like in the army is being a fisherman. And um. Deadliest catch. Yeah, deadliest catch. <laughs> I was I wasn't in Alaska, but um, it, it was it was definitely we got we got a fair share of you know inclement weather and snowstorms and stuff like that. That was crazy. Yeah, you got to be tough out there. But um, one one of the craziest things, and this kind of goes along with the lines of why observers and and managing uh, commercial fishermen is important, is that you see the the way that fishermen kind of react when you're on board. They, they, they don't really – there's reasons that they don't like having you on board. You know what I mean? Uh, because it's like an intrusion of their privacy. You know, th- their boat is like their home, you know, and they're inviting you into their home like a complete stranger. But 
there are reasons why we need to be on those boats to keep you know people in check because this like fishing is like it, it it's like hunting our food you know it's it's like basically taking down entire forests on land um what trawl fishing does in the ocean and uh i spent some time down in north carolina and uh they were gillnet fishing actually down there and i saw it, it was clear that the whole can you quickly describe gillnet fishing oh, yeah, for the yeah, listeners absolutely so gillnet fishing is these these guys will set out um strings of it's like a, a net wall of monofilament line, and essentially anything, any fish that swims into this uh, net is going to get trapped and caught in it. And they just kind of hang there until the the fi- so the fishermen will let them soak for the net soak in the water for like three hours or so, and they'll come back and pull it up and you know t- pick out all the fish that got stuck in there. Um, but in North Carolina, what I noticed was. We went out this one day and the whole fleet was fishing kind of near each other because they knew where the fish were. And they were going for this fish called Atlantic Croaker. But unfortunately, every single boat out there, there must have been a a school of scalloped hammerhead sharks that swam by. Every boat was pulling up. Like my boat pulled up maybe like eight or ten hammerhead sharks. It It was crazy to see. And what you notice, though, is that the fishermen know that this is a bad thing. Um, So it's it's an interesting experience because they'll if they know that they have a shark coming up they'll ask the observer to you know uh, maybe throw on a pot of coffee or something you know um try and get you kind of out of there because they they know that they're in trouble for that you know um so just under like seeing all that firsthand like the the real negative negative impacts of the fishing industry was i'd say one one of the most impactful experiences of you know my life just you know seeing seeing those hammerhead sharks come up seeing um you know some some of the other like fish i i um, fortunately never saw anyone pull up like a dolphin or a seal or anything like that but i know that it happens i've I've heard stories you know talk to any anyone who's observed everyone's got really crazy stories um and you know both good and bad like like i said um so i would say that that one definitely stuck with me and uh i also yeah, uh, I would say that that was probably. Yeah. So what did those moments teach you about the the melding of the, the fisheries and conservation worlds? Are there any specific lessons that, that popped out from those yeah. experiences? Yeah, definitely. I, I would say that um, what really popped out is that even the, even though like I gained this understanding of fishermen, right? Like they, and it's very understandable that they want their space, they want their privacy, they want to be able to run their business like they used to. You know what I mean? But unfortunately, the nature of fishing and and the, just the global fishing industry is that it's an extractive uh, industry. So you're you're pulling this resource out, and the nature of fishing is that you want to catch as much as you can. It's like a gold rush. Like these people, you talk to captains, they'll have days where they catch, you know, fifty thousand dollars, or maybe not fifty thousand dollars worth, but they catch like a lot. I mean, if you get a great yeah. haul of tuna, that actually could be a reality. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you have it, it's this gold rush mentality where you have the the chance and the opportunity to make a lot, a lot of money. But there's other days where you catch nothing. You know what I mean? And that that kind of leads fishermen to to want to like naturally they want to pull out as much as they can. You know what I mean? And the reality is that our world is changing. Like we we've been doing this for too long. Um, so many uh, I forget the percentage of the world's fish populations that are overfished, but it's it's way too much. Um, and that coupled with the effects of climate change, you know, plastics are reaching, you know, moving their way up food webs into our own seafood um 
there there is real reason to manage fisheries and so there is a reason why we need observers on boats there is a reason why we need to track these people and there's a reason why um they need to report so heavily and and fill out all this paperwork and and be a part of the system you know i'm personally i'm all for uh like not like not that um much involvement of government and business right i think it's 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 healthy for an industry to to operate freely but when you're taking fish wild animals out of the ocean and like directly and like it's it's a direct impact when you have trawl boats that go out they sweep out entire ecosystems on the floor on the seafloor that needs to be managed and and i think that the young generations of fishermen are understanding this. Older ones are kind of stuck. You know, they're used to what the past used to be like. You know what I mean? They're, they're used to more freedom. And once people have freedom, it's tougher to take that away. But the younger the younger fishermen out on these boats, I could tell from talking to them that they have a much better understanding and willing to co- cooperate because they know that their future depends on a healthy fishery like mm-hmm. they they know that there won't be fish left if they don't cooperate yeah know? it's like uh you know sustainably managing fisheries like sustainably managing your finances like you need to be saving in order like of course it's fun to spend and use but you need to be investing in your longevity and your own future yeah um and i i definitely think that it's worth noting that the United States has some of the strictest, if not the most strict, fisheries management laws in the entire world. And there's a great deal of frustration that stems from the fishing community because uh, the majority of our seafood that we have in the United States is actually imported. Um, So trying to lead by example with our fisheries policy and our fisheries laws which are super important and will give a special shout out to the Magnuson-Stevens Act because that has um, been one of our most successful conservation policies and laws that we have um, in terms of making sure that we're managing our fish stocks in a responsible way and has completely led to the rebuild of entire fish populations that crashed and were, um, you know, way overfished. Um, So... Even though we have really strict laws, and that's a that's a major source of frustration um, for our U.S.-based fisheries, commercial fishermen, um, leading by example and trying to address this on a global level. And I certainly do not have the answers to how we're going to do this, but it's complicated. Uh, it is very complicated. <laughs> um, trying to push the the rest of the world and other countries to a place where. Um, we are making sure that we're not overfishing our fish stocks. I don't. I don't know if that is. Uh, we start buying more local, which yeah. you know I'm a big fan of of that hyper local movement and supporting local fisheries, local businesses. So I don't know if that that's one answer, but certainly not as simple as that. Well, um, I, I'd I'd like to add actually, um, if if I'm a businessman, right? Uh, if you look at the global seafood uh, production as a whole, right? Aquaculture is the fastest growing food sector in the world. So what I really see now nowadays, and and there's really good examples happening out there, are some fishermen are, are trans uh, transitioning to farming the seas. Um, you know, like a ver- vertical farming of like seaweed bivalves. Uh, I think I think bivalve farming is like a huge huge industry that really, um, if if you're looking to get into that field, that that's uh, it's at the forefront right now, and. I, w- I would say that I think I do think that it's 
the time is coming around where aquaculture and uh like done done right because there are there are a lot of bad examples of aquaculture but aquaculture done right which i think we're getting closer to um is the way of the future in my opinion i think it has to be if we are going to continue consuming seafood yeah in the way that we have been and with the growing population it's going to increase um i think the reality of it is is that we are going to have to farm our fish if we want to continue eating it at the rate that we are yeah um so Staying on the subject of fish for a second, but not as heavy as okay. overfishing. Um, uh, do you have a favorite fish? And if you do, why is it your favorite? Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to say my favorite fish this is a shout out to, to New York fishermen, uh, blackfish. Uh, the tog is what they're, you know, the scientific name is. Um, they're, they're the most fun fish to catch, honestly. And they're just this cool, like, uh, it, it would be considered like a... A uh, cold water version of like a reef reef fish. Um, they live, you know, in in structures under the sea. So, like, uh, for example, right off New York's coast, there, there's a lot of projects where uh, the state will sink structures, like a like abandoned cars, trains, whatever it is. Um, they'll sink those at specific locations, and if you know where those spots are, you're gonna catch like that. That's where these po- these population of blackfish are just like. Can you eat those? Oh yeah, they're they're really good eating, but. They're definitely uh, the, my favorite fish, and they got this uh, this really kind of goofy looking face, um, <laughs> like that, most fish. Yeah, like, like most fish. Yeah, it's fine because they think your face is goofy. Oh, so. oh exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, but they got these like these uh, these really human like teeth that you know they're very square, which they use to um, and and they they're always crooked, but uh, they use them to to eat their their favorite fish, which is uh, crabs, uh, crabs and shellfish. So. They, they use that, you know, the, these like specifically shaped teeth to crunch down on like a hard shell. And uh, that's the kind of bait that you end up using to catch these fish. So that's that's definitely definitely got to be my favorite. Really cool. Yeah. Um, so I know you touch on your love for surfing. Um, and before we pivot into um, talking about the Terramar Project. Okay. I know that you surf in the wintertime. Yeah. Um, and I think you mentioned you learned how to surf in California, but I would love to touch on what surfing is like in the Northeast. <laughs> um, you surf all the time up here, whether it's in New York, whether it's here in Massachusetts. Um, what is like, is it totally different surfing here than it is out on the West Coast? I would imagine it is. Um, but, you know, I've seen you go out in the middle of the winter time. It's the be- the beach is iced up and you're out there surfing. Like, what is that like? Oh, it's the best time of year to go surfing. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. No, because in, in the summer out here, you know, you get, you know, everyone and their mothers out trying to catch a wave. So it's, it's very crowded. You know, you get a lot of uh, kooks or uh, people who don't really know what they're doing, um, you know, stealing waves or, you know, just kind of out there. Uh, but the winter, it's it's awesome it's just you and maybe like one or two of your buddies that you're actually you really should be out there with a couple people because that's the most dangerous time but um yeah it's just you and a couple buddies and the waves are perfect because the during the winter up here in the northeast we get these things called nor'easters which bring perfect offshore winds and just massive swell like we get we get more swell in the winter than we do in the summer the summer is like flat up here um and it's just an adventure, honestly. Like, there's no, there's nothing cooler than, well, <laughs> there's probably cooler things, but um, nothing cooler than just like, get it, waking up early on a winter day. You get a coffee because it's like the warmest thing that you're gonna have in the next like two hours, <laughs> and then like, you, you change in the car, 
you know, and, and you're just stoked to get out there. You, you, you jump into the water and immediately you're like awake. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's nothing that wakes you up more than jumping into freezing cold water. And, uh, you know, so like up here in the, in the Northeast, uh, I've, I've surfed in New York, but like up, up by like Maine, New Hampshire, that that's cold. That's, that's colder than New York. And, I mean, that water is cold even in July. I oh, grew yeah. up in Maine. Um, and I feel like my experience of swimming there, even in the hottest months of the year was like baking on the beach until you were sweating and you couldn't stand it anymore. Yeah. And then doing like a polar bear plunge. And yeah. that was, that's in like July and August. Yeah. So, um, no, and, and I would, I would also say that like, and I noticed this when I travel around to surf different places. Um, people who are from New York or like the Northeast who surf, uh, we're like a different breed of surfer than people elsewhere. Like uh, when, when I travel to Barbados or Bali um, or you know anywhere else that's warm. And you, you like the guys from New York are out there like all day. You know, as, so, as soon as we get some warm weather and nice waves that we can just wear our board shorts, we're not getting out of the water. Like it, it could yeah. be like it could be like two foot and kind of, you know, crappy surf and we'll be out there all day because we're like, this is the best thing ever. Um, whereas other people are more picky, you know, like you'll get the guys from California who are like, yeah, I might go out, you know, in a couple of hours when the tide gets a little better or a little more perfect. You know, it's, it's not quite <laughs> perfect yet, but like it, coming from the Northeast, you really appreciate any chance that you have to get in the water like i'll yeah. drive i'll drive two hours south to rhode island if it's if it's gonna be good you know i'll wake up at 4 a.m and be there be there by six surf for a couple hours and then work you know it's it's like you definitely realize how um i don't know like seeing us do this i guess it it, it should make people realize like how awesome of an experience this is you know like we got to be crazy to jump into you know, freezing cold water at like six in the morning before work and then drive straight to work with your hair still like freezing and wet and salty and uh, and then do a whole day of work and then like, you know, and, and it was worth it, you know. So yeah. that's I, I think that's certainly a hearty group. That's yeah. for sure. And I'm, yeah. I bet those are some of like the best night's sleeps that you've ever had when you when you go out like that. Oh, yeah. Um, and then for anyone who's thinking about trying this whole surfing in the northeast during winter business. Brian is wearing a very thick wetsuit. I yeah. will make note of that. Do not just jump in the water at 6 a.m. with nothing because yeah. that is very dangerous. Oh, yeah. Very, <laughs> no, it's very – like I've actually had experiences once. Um, one, of, one of my buddies, he ripped his wetsuit in the, in the um, winter and, you know, had to get pulled out. Like, bas- like one of his other buddies came by. He was getting like hypothermia. Um, that's why it's also, it's also really important and it's a rule of thumb that I take personally for safety – I won't surf a spot um, if there's no one else out. Like I, I, it's nice to have you know not that many people at a surf spot, but like for your own safety, and it's like it's water safety. You you always want at least one other person either on the beach watching you or in there with you, just in case anything happens. You know. Mm-hmm. Smart. Yeah. And I know. So I know that you said it was really hard to describe the surfer's connection to the ocean. I use sound effects. But I would like to hear you try, even if you do have to make sound effects. Um, and then touch on some of the concerns that you might have. Um, because you, both you in your your recreating with fishermen, um, but then also with surfing, you guys get to see the firsthand account of how the ocean is changing. So do you have any concerns or have you seen any challenges um, with how the ocean is changing for the sport of surfing. Um, but first, I would love to hear you at least try to describe what what surfing means to you. Okay. Um, I'd say what it means to me, it's like 
it, it's basically like a good drug, I would say, is like the best way to put it. <laughs> like, um, it, it's it's addicting. You know what I mean? It's you like you catch a wave. You you're going so fast on this thing. If you get a barrel, oh my god! You know what I mean? Like that's that's the coolest thing that you could ever experience. And a barrel is when it crashes yeah, over when it cur- you, curls over you. There's like classic surfing photos that you see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, exactly. That that's the barrel. And uh, I would I would say the best way to ex- describe it is just like pure, pure like adrenaline, and like you're in your happy place. You know what I mean? Nothing else matters. There's like literally nothing else matters. There's not work. There's not like you're not thinking of. You know, what do I have to do today? What's going on in my family? What's going on in my, you know, professional life? Like, do I have to worry about this or that? Feeding my dog? I don't know. It, it's 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 literally. <laughs> don't forget that. Yeah. No, but it, it's, yeah, don't forget that. But it's it's literally, you're just, it's the most pure in the moment sensation. Yeah, just you experience. in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. What are, you, what are some of your favorite sound effects that you use? Whoopah. <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 doing a turn, you know. Um, yeah. That's pretty great. Yeah. All right, so now let's uh, shift to the Terramar Project, which is the amazing organization that you work for. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about the Terramar Project, what it is? Um, well, first, let's start with what does Terramar mean? Um, it means land, sea. Land, sea. Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Tarmar, so that connection land, land, between the land and the sea. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, touch a little bit more about on about uh, what the Terramar Project is. What's your mission? What are you guys um, seeking to accomplish? Yeah, definitely. So Terramar's mission is, well, to, to, to explain Terramar's mission, first I want to explain uh, a little bit of marine policy. So the way that um, the oceans are governed, right? Every country in the world governs up to 200 miles off of its coastline. And that's called its exclusive economic zone. So countries... Uh, they they have control of the resources in that zone. They can you know drill. They can fish. They, it's theirs, right? But outside of that 200 miles is what's called the high seas or international waters, and that makes up uh, it's the vast majority of our pl- actually the it's the biggest ecosystem in the world, and it's the majority of our ocean is ungoverned international waters, and technically this space. It's a global common, so it belongs to me and you. You know what I mean? Every, everyone in the world owns the ocean, the high seas. And so what Terramar's mission is, is to create a global ocean community uh, where people have a passport to the high seas and show ownership of this part of the ocean that is vastly ungoverned. There's a lot of illegal fishing, drilling, uh, exploration that's happening there right now that is goes largely unchecked. And it, all those resources, all of that space belongs to you and I, and we should have a say in what goes on out there. So on our site, Terramar was founded eight years ago um, with that idea of let's create, let's give people passports to the high seas which you can sign up for on our site um and in signing up for it's a symbolic passport but what we do is we work closely with the united nations uh to to make sure that the ocean is in conversation and so the big success that terramar had um a few like i think it was like five years ago or something was helping to implement sustainable development goal 14 which is for the oceans in the united nations and that just basically put the oceans on the table uh, it, it set it set forward goals that uh, the United Nations has right now um, to protect, you know, create marine protected areas, to limit fishing in in the Arctic, stuff like that. Um, and that that was really Taramar's mission. And so it 
the way that I think of it too is anyone who signs up for you know an ocean passport, um, it's almost the idea of like like Batman kind of. That, that's what that's what <laughs> I like to to compare it to is that you know the idea of Batman and you know in the movies is that uh, anyone can be this masked hero, right? Anyone can be it could it could be any one of us, um, and that's kind of the idea with Taramar is that you like the ocean hero can be anyone it, it can be me you it should be you or i it should be you know really anyone out there who wants to step up uh take you know claim their ownership for the ocean and and do something about it and that's that's really the core mission of terramar and um you know since since uh we've we've grown and time has passed uh, we also have a daily newsletter that goes out every day that um, is really part of our core mission because we want our ocean community to be educated on the the, the latest science, uh, technology, um, policy, news, e- everything that's going on that's related to the ocean and that's important. We want our followers to you know be aware of, and so uh, we have we have a newsletter that goes out. Monday through Friday, um, and that that reaches like seventy thousand people that are signed up to that, and you know across all of our social media, I'll share it. Um, if you follow Taramar Project, you'll definitely you know I'm and and that's all me. I'm putting it out every day, so um, <laughs> you can you can definitely. It's actually kind of funny. Um, you know, I've, I've grown when I grew up, my mom was always a uh, very you know I, I grew up with a close Italian family. My mom's uh, you know your typical Italian mother. She's always very worried about me, even even to this day. You know when I when I go surfing, she know she knows I'm surfing because she'll check the forecast, and <laughs> she'll check the Taramar project to make sure that I'm still posting to see if I'm alive. You know what I mean? That, I, that oh like I'm out of the water, I'm good. He's you know he he posted to Taramar's Instagram, um, so that's that, I I just figure I share that, but um, but yeah no that's 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 really. Um, one of Terramar's strongest points is that we, we put out that newsletter. And since I've come on board, uh, what my focus has really been with Terramar is to break, you know, we, we do a good job at um, promoting education and awareness for ocean issues, uh, mostly, you know, relating to pertaining to the high seas. Uh, I like to focus on climate change and overfishing as, as two of our four, you know, two of the most impactful uh, forcings on our ocean that, that people have, right? Um, and plastic, like, don't get me wrong, plastic pollution is huge, but uh, right now, uh, in, in terms of like what I like to push with Taramar is, is really climate change and overfishing because I don't think that enough not, uh, groups focus on on those two uh, aspects. I mean, there are there are groups that do, but uh, I can get into that later. But um, but yeah, that, so my my focus recently has been to uh, create a quantifiable impact for Taramar through creating a, a one campaign in particular for impact, which has been our, our no more butts campaign to, to help uh, provide solutions to littering cigarette butts, which are the most polluted uh, plastic item actually uh, in, in the world. It, it's the most littered item and that, you know, I'm, we can, we can go into way more detail on, but um, that's what I came on board to do. And I also created a, a hub for different ocean actions. Uh, so if you go onto our site and you can click on our explore actions page, um, you can find citizen science projects, volunteer work like beach cleanups, uh, petitions, really any way for you to get involved and step up in your local community. Because I wanted to empower uh, this this community of you know ocean citizens that we've created. So that's that's really kind of Terramar's mission as a whole and kind of the whole background. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Terramar. I mean, I their their newsletter is called the Daily Catch. You can sign up for it on their website, which is the the Terramar Project right? Yeah, Terramar Project dot org. Um, 
follow them on social media because they really are this amazing resource for education tools and then um, opportunities to engage in conservation and stewardship and take action um, on an individual level. And then even further with partnering, partnering with organizations, other nonprofits, um, and then corporate sponsorships. I think that you guys do a lot of really cool work um, partnering with for-profit businesses. Um, can you touch on some of the the projects that you guys have done yeah. recently? Yeah, definitely. So, so the No More Butts campaign, which uh, I start I started up this summer actually, um, because. Essentially, what I saw was that, uh, pla- you know, the the idea of plastic pollution, right? Uh, the problem has really garnered mainstream media attention, and that that's mostly thanks to the work uh, to target plastic straws, right? Everyone, everyone this year, it's become like a table side discussion. Is you know, you you go to you go to dinner for Thanksgiving, like it's going to get brought up somehow, plastic pollution, right? Or, or single use plastics and plastic straws, and. The plastic straw was like this really good symbol to to make it, to relate it to every everyone out there in the world, right? As an item that you don't really need, you know what I mean? And and so uh, through that symbol, plastic pollution has garnered international attention. And what I thought, you know, in my head, and what a lot of people do think is that uh, plastic straws aren't like even close to the number one most polluted plastic item. It's, it's it's a problem like we do find, and it went viral after that video with the sea turtle getting you know the straw pulled out of its nose which that's that's like a crazy visual and that really resonated with people but plastic straws aren't the biggest problem in in terms of plastic pollution um so so logically my my thought was Hey, the, the next step to the fight against plastic pollution so it's it's got this international attention this is the a hot topic right now Let's target the most littered item, right? So cigarette butts. That's uh, there. There's um, what? What's the group that the Coast Ocean Conservancy? They do the international beach cleanup every year, mm-hmm. and from their data, from you know beach cleanups all over the world, consistently the most polluted item that we find on beaches is cigarette butts, and it makes sense. You walk down any street, you're gonna find uh, cigarette butts littered on the ground, right? So the way that I approached this was how how do we solve this problem, right? It, so the what's the core reason why we litter cigarette butts, um, which by the way are made of plastic? Uh, that they're, they're a form of plastic pollution, which a lot of people don't know. And, and they're filters, right? Yeah, the, it's the filter that's made of plastic, and they can actually be recycled through uh, one of our partners called TerraCycle. So that's that's who we work with to to actually recycle them. But so so I thought, you know, what's the core problem? What's the reason why people litter these? And it's really because it's a social norm, right? People. You know, if you smoke cigarettes, like you, you don't have another option really, like all the time. You know, uh, you, there's there's not always receptacles for you to put these in, and you're not gonna. And anyone who tells you that they put it back into the case or into their pocket to before, you know, to, instead of flicking it on the ground, they're lying to you because uh, tr- trust me, no no one. It smells so bad, like that. No one actually does that. Um, you're gonna flick it on the ground. Yeah, and you don't want to light a trash can on fire. Exactly. So, you yeah. Know. Smokey the bear. You know, you don't want to set. <laughs> yeah, but regardless it's it's a problem because people don't even think about it as being a form of pollution they just think about it as like all right everyone does it this is you know i'm, I'm just flicking on the ground it, it's normal you know what i mean and the key to, to stopping this is to show like to associate cigarette butts as being a form of plastic because that's a hot topic right now so if people understand that this is this is 
contributing to the global problem of plastic pollution and is one of the biggest sources of it, then people who smoke will be pressured to not litter it, right? Like the, the, they'll be growing public opinion, um, trying to get people to stop doing it. And so that's that's like the the awareness and education arm of No More Butts campaign is that we want to spread this uh, th- this these facts that cigarette butts they d- they are a form of plastic pollution they can be recycled and they do uh, release chemicals into our waterways right the and the facts are absolutely insane it's two point I think it's two point three million are littered every minute around the world uh, it, it's something like I don't know like four point five trillion I think it is are littered every year. One in ten of those reach a body of water, so they are getting into our waterways. They are, you know, they're contributing to the global problem problem of plastic pollution, and um, so that that's that's one arm of what uh, no more butts is. The other arm is solutions. So uh, we want to educate people that this is a form of plastic pollution, but then we also want to, you know, give, give them real solutions. We don't want to just be one of those groups that um, you know says that there's a problem and you know doesn't do anything about it. So. The, the solution that I found is for individuals, we we provide uh, pocket ashtrays uh, for people to buy and purchase and and, uh, you know, keep in their pocket. It's, it's like a very it, it's like smaller than, a you know, the pack of cigarettes itself, which is actually made out of recycled yeah. cigarette butts. Right. Is that yeah, the, correct with that? Exactly. The person that we work with to make them uh, works closely with Tire Cycle and they create they uh, the packaging for the the pocket ashtrays is made from the, the recycled cigarette butts, yeah, and and it's just it's a it's a simple solution to give people no more excuses, and that's that's the kind of the the name of the campaign, no more butts, no more excuses to litter, right? Is a we we provide these pocket ashtrays for individuals. B we're working with businesses to uh, allow them to fund receptacles in their communities. So it basically. It's it's like this low hanging fruit for any bar, restaurant, like local business, even like um, real estate agents, to get involved in the fight against plastics. Because if you think about it, phasing out plastic straws, phasing out plastic bags, styrofoam in a, a small business's operation is difficult to do. You know, it, it requires full on change of your of of your operations. Whereas this solution is like just a, it's a very easy thing. They have to pay. It's a, it's a hundred dollars for uh, a, you know, for a business to buy one of these receptacles, and then it just—it's out there. It's you know, uh, people who visit and their their location can um, participate in the solutions, and you know, they, they re- they'll realize that they're they're benefiting from this. You know, they they get to mark. You know, people people nowadays appreciate when a business takes you know, a step to reduce its impact. Yeah. And I think if you're, especially if you're a bar or restaurant, but any sort of storefront you have, you don't want um, cigarettes littering out in front of your store. It's gross. It looks dirty. Um, So if you were to invest in one of these, especially if you're a location where people will step out and first smoke, um, investing in one of these is really smart because you put it out in front of your business and then you provide people that are uh, your customers a a clean place to put it and then you can recycle those butts. And then also if it's not necessarily right out in front of your business, um, you were telling me earlier that you're providing an opportunity for people to advertise on these um, receptacles. So it's another place for you to promote your business 
um, and promote that you guys are, are eco-friendly and yep. um, helping in this fight against plastic pollution. Yeah, exactly. So if, if you're a business and you operate, you know, in a coastal city or even, even if you're inland, um, it's it's a great opportunity to to be able to put your your own brand out there and show that you're keeping your community clean. Um, so, for example, we're working with like real estate agents uh, in this one city in New York who, you know, it's a coastal city. And uh, we're working with the city to put up receptacles on all of the bus stops uh, all, all along this one boardwalk. Right. So there's there's 10 locations right now that we're going to put this in. And it, it gives uh, these these smaller businesses an opportunity to you know, for a hundred bucks, get their name out there to, you know, their audience that they're trying to reach. And, you know, while at the same time providing a solution to this problem. Um, so I think that's really important. And the other really important um, part about these solutions is that a lot of nowadays, plastic, like the plastic problem is such it, so mainstream right now. Right. And it now a lot of organizations have some kind of arm that deals with plastic pollution. Like it's almost like a requirement for a marine conservation group nowadays. Um, and the problem that I find with a lot of plastic solutions is that they generally target uh, mid- middle, upper middle class, upper class, uh, already kind of hyper aware people, right? Um, like the the businesses that are often going, you know, plastic with uh, alternative plastics or cutting out plastics are the higher end businesses that can kind of afford to make these changes. Um, whereas this solution to fight cigarette butts, it, it really like we're, we're putting these on bus stops. We're putting these, you know, places where everyday people who aren't already super hyper aware about the problem are going to see it and they're and they're going to participate in the solutions. So it's it's really reaching, you know, it's an opportunity to reach out to a whole different audience. And and that's kind of how that's how I think you really make impact in, in nowadays working for a marine conservation group. It's it's don't preach to the choir. It's it's find a way to bring these solutions to more people, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, um, and make it easy. I yeah, think that's the key yeah. to any advocacy campaign that you oh, yeah. you run is making it easy for people to participate. Oh yeah, especially yeah. like working with if you're trying to work with a city, like it, making it as easy as possible at, just to put this through because it you know working with cities or, or governments takes time, yeah. and that's why like this solution it's very easy for them to adopt and it's really like hands off for them. So people listening to this may be thinking, okay, this isn't. A great solution to getting some of that that waste off of our streets and off of our beaches and out of our waters. Who is responsible? Like, what happens to the the cigarettes after someone is done smoking and puts it in the receptacle? Who yeah. empties it? Where does it go? Yeah, definitely. So the way that I've set this up is that um, whoever funded the receptacles uh, is responsible for t- you know handling the waste and mailing it into to TerraCycle to be recycled. And and we provide you know, the free shipping for that. But um, basically the way that I've worked this is that if you if you look at like a restaurant that wants to get on board with us, right? And they put out a receptacle outside their, their location. They sign a contract with us designating one person who is employed by them to uh, be a volunteer to, to take out the trash, to take out this these cigarette butt waste and recycle it. And the, the benefit that this one person gets is usually in restaurants, you know, people who You'll, you'll get people who are in college, people who are in high school, people who are like young and looking to get more volunteer work or experiences for their resume. So what I've allowed what I've allowed to happen is that whoever signs on as taking that responsibility is also a volunteer for Taramar. So you're you're, you know, getting this volunteer work, the, this volunteer opportunity. It kind of gives 
people more of an incentive to get involved. And because that that was one of the problems that I ran into when I was developing this whole program was, you know, some of the businesses just they, they're hesitant to they, they think that I'm going to come by and take care of it for them, which uh, to, to have a real lasting impact. You want these people to be involved themselves. You want them to be the ones that are, you know, by, you know, by monthly taking this out and recycling it and and engage like continuing their engagement in the program. So that way they don't forget about it. And it really just, you know, they stay active, they stay fresh with it. And, you know, they it, it's something that they can brag about, you know. And then that waste gets sent to TerraCycle, which yep. I will make the clarification that TerraMar and TerraCycle sound very, <laughs> yeah. very similar. They're not the same organization. They're actually different, but they're in partnership with each other. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then TerraCycle then recycles yes TerraCycle has uh so cigarette butts are like an odd waste stream to recycle and and uh TerraCycle they are a great company um that you know we're we're so happy to be partnered with them and they operate in the united states to uh their their facility is located in in new jersey where they have the ability to break down the cellulose acetate which is the the type of plastic from cigarette butts and they make that into uh it's not like a usable product because it's coming from, you know, the, a cigarette butt. Like you wouldn't want, uh, so, you know, like your, your uh, food packaging made from that, you know. They, they, they turn it into industrial uh, like shipping, product, shipping plastics or uh, like park benches, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really not – it's nothing that you're going to use, but um, it's, it's replacing plastic elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's it, – it's – or it's going into our pocket ashtrays, you know. So that's, that's uh, you know, closed loop. Yeah. I mean, this is quite the project you guys are taking on because not only is it, I mean, the number one source of pollution, but then you start seeing that people are, you know, addicted to the nicotine in it. So that's another like human health aspect. Um, And you see these like cigarettes sort of polluting in three different ways, you know, the polluting the air when they're being smoked, polluting human bodies. And then when they go into the, the ocean or the ground, all the chemicals that are still a part of that waste are then also leaching into the environment. Um you know, in addition to the plastic issues. So these, even though they're small, they are mighty in terms of the punch that they pack for polluting. Um, So it's nice to see, though, that you guys are taking an approach of educating, but then partnering with groups that can do something about it and then providing people simple solutions to take that first step to um, reducing the amount of cigarette butt pollution that's out there because it is a massive problem, but there's only one way to start reducing yeah. them is going out there and, and starting to provide easy solutions for people to plug into. Yeah. Um, so in addition to cigarette butt pollution, I'm wondering if you have any advice for our listeners about how to reduce their reliance on plastics in general. Um, yeah. You can speak to cigarette butts more if you'd like but um i'll open that up to the whole wide world of plastics yeah definitely i i mean i would say i see this is it's it's an interesting question because you know personally we can all you know if, if you're aware about the issue and you care about it we can all make changes in our own life right like the easiest thing that you can do is just to buy a reusable water bottle you're saving yourself money by not paying for water and you know you're you're staying hydrated you're staying healthy but um, what I find interesting is I think, I think, a, and this, this is kind of coming at it from a, a top down kind of perspective. I think that some of the best so, or most important solutions to plastic come from, uh, 
the like governments taking action and uh, implementing either like a ban on it or uh, you know a, a tax on plastic bags because that that really forces our hand a little bit more into change you know changing our, our daily lives right so like you're you're always going to get people who are passionate about the ocean care about reducing their single use plastics and my my advice is you know the to keep keep on with those solutions use use a, a reusable water bottle um, you know. If you're a business, try try and cut out some of the single-use plastics from your life. Uh, don't use straws; you don't need them. You know what I mean? Like just just be conscious of the 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 way and the scale of that plastic is present in your own life. But to really solve these problems, you you know, I, I'm a firm believer that people will do what's easiest, and this is just you know socioeconomics. Like people will do the you know, the the majority of people will do the cheapest easiest thing that that's available right so i think that um per, you know my personal studies and perspective is that the the best way to make change or, or, or like the most effective way to make change is um you know coming for, at it from like a top-down kind of approach although consumer demand does have its, its place in changing uh the plastic problem so when we like and you're seeing it nowadays when like Younger people today that have that are coming into the market with spending power demand eco-friendly products, right? And that's you know businesses are going to change the way that they operate to to fit that. You know what I mean? Um, and and you're seeing that nowadays where it, you know there's a focus on local, more locally produced foods. Um, you know uh, businesses op- changing their the, their operations to cut out certain plastics, and it's, it's because we demand it. You know what I mean? So. I do, I do see the place for, uh, you know, consumer demand having an effect on plastic. But I do also think that some of the most effective solutions are when you see the, you know, a, a sweeping like ban on plastic bags or, or something like that. You know, so that's that's just my my own perspective. You know, through my experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you, um, you know, for any of the listeners out there, if you frequent a cafe or a bar, or a restaurant, um, you know, simply asking. You're wherever you're going, if they have a more sustainable option or would consider replacing straws, um, either getting rid of them or replacing them with, you know, whatever alternatives, fun alternatives are out there. Yeah. Um, There's a whole bunch nowadays. Yeah, there really are. You can look them up. Um, that can really have a big impact when they start seeing people that are their own patrons. Um demonstrating that that that's what they value um the people that are giving them the money are asking for a certain certain thing and um you know that that can have a lot of impact if uh you know you go in and wield that that the power of the wallet yeah um so Terramar also has a major social media presence you guys have quite the following um and you're always posting really awesome, engaging stuff, really educational things. Um, so can you talk a little bit about using social media as a tool to grow awareness and engagement around all of these projects and initiatives that you guys are working on? Yeah, definitely. I mean, now, nowadays, social media is like it's necessary. Like it, to, it's, the, it's the easiest way to reach as many people as possible. You know what I mean? Like our newsletter goes out every day, but it, it wouldn't reach half of the people that it does if it wasn't for social media. Right. Um, and non for profits and and marine conservation groups need to use social media to their advantage and it's it's so important to reach new audiences to um just 
educate the public. That's how people get their news nowadays is Twitter. You know what I mean? It's we, we live in a constantly changing world and it's and it's it's very much uh, online and social media. So I think I mean, it's, it's crucial to Taramar's uh, mission because we're we're. You know, our, one of our strongest points is our daily news that goes out every day. So that, you know, we've amassed a, a solid Twitter following. And um, it's it's crucial to just how how we grow our following, how we get more people involved with us, how we reach new audiences. Um, actually, something very interesting that I've, uh, you know, I've spoken with you before about this, but uh, I've been looking at Facebook to reach new audiences, actually. So uh, I know for a fact that a lot of these, like like we spoke about before, um, fishing and wildlife groups, they they're very active as uh, Facebook groups on on you know social media. And if you look at like any like where where wherever your business or your your non for profit is operating, um, like let's say New York Fish and Wildlife, right? There there are fish like recreational fishing groups. There's commercial fishing groups. It, you know, just forums on Facebook where these people are. You know, that's that's where they're talking to each other you know what i mean and um i've seen that as like a a new outlet for taramar to really you know stop preaching to the choir and reach you know get more of these fishermen involved with our work right and and like if i have uh an action related to citizen science or, or um getting recreational fishermen involved with uh the science going on in new york I'll post, you know, I'll post the action into that group and, you know, I might get some, some interesting responses from, you know, that community. But for the most part, you know, it, it's very uh, positive, I would say, you know, pe- you'll get, you know, you'll get like some guys that'll, you know, kind of like internet trolls and will poke fun at whatever, you know, you're posting because you're an environmentalist. But um, for the most part, like, I think I do get support on there and, uh, that, that's, that's where I get people to engage. It's such an awesome way to engage with your following and people that relate to the issues you're working on, on a, such a personal basis. Like yeah. you can be interacting with somebody that's completely across the country in yeah. a way that we've never been able to access them before. Um, and I know that you have heard me, I give, I, um, for the listeners, I give a whole presentation about the importance of using social media from, uh, your brand's perspective, um, in order to gain, um, more engagement in your advocacy initiatives. Um, so I could talk at length about, my love for using social media from a brand perspective. Um, and I will likely do an entire show on it at some point. Um, but the bottom line is that I always love to share with people is that there is a conversation going on out there about whatever you're working on already. Um, yeah. And is your your job as a subject matter expert and a leader in your field to participate in that conversation? Yeah. Um, so if you take nothing else from this whole social media segment of the show, it's that if you want to be looked to as a leader in your field, the way that technology has evolved and the way that people are using social media to get their news um, and find other subject matter experts, I mean, you need to be on you need to be on there for that reason alone yeah. to be participating in that conversation. Yeah, and, um, and I'll say as well that's that's actually one of the ways that I gain uh, a good amount of. Uh, following is, you know, I'll, I'll post every day, right? But when I actually like comment, you know, to, and and respond to people on our social media, when I like, uh, I see someone, you know, an expert in the field posted, you know, some kind of news or some kind of story, and I, I, you know, give our input and and our perspective on it. That's kind of how we gain, uh, you know, a good amount of following because that that's how people see you, you know, uh, people, you know, new audiences 
from whatever you're commenting on will see that you exist, that you're out there, that you are, you know, an expert on the on the subject and uh, they'll follow you. You know, so that's that's I, I think it's very important. So go ahead and give them a follow, everybody. Um, yeah, you guys are you. Terramar Project across the board for Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter? Yeah, yeah. You should be able to find us if you search Terramar Project. Um, it might be the Terramar Project. I, I got to look it up. Um, but but yeah, search that Terramar Project and you'll you'll definitely find us. Yeah, and sign up for their newsletter, The, da- the Daily Catch. Yeah, um, become an ocean citizen too. Yes. Are there other ways that listeners can engage with your work yeah, that def- you want to give a shout out to? Definitely. I would say check out our Explore Actions page. There's so many great opportunities for you to take action in your local community um you know we we work from you know the policy end with, with, with petitions get out there check out one of the beach cleanups from our partner organizations or um you know just even make a change in your your daily life get involved with the citizen science project that's that's definitely like an awesome way for people to engage um so before we start to wrap up i i know that you've mentioned some travels already and you're quite well traveled um you you've already touched on barbados and bali a little bit um so through your travels, both for fun and work, um, how do you think that that has impacted your perspective of the world and on conservation um, just through seeing all the different yeah, def- places that you've been to? Oh, definitely. So uh, one, one subject matter that I've personally uh, found very interesting is community-based management of natural resources and community-based management of the oceans, right? Um, so through my travels, you know, I, I encourage anyone to get out there and travel and see see different cultures, see the world, because um, your perspectives from like, for example, me living in the Northeast or in New York, the, the culture here is entirely different than in the Caribbean or, you know, in Indonesia. Like it's every place that you go is a whole different, you know, um, whole different culture, a whole different like uh, lifestyle, just everything. And that that especially is true when it comes to conservation and and uh fisheries and and just the the problems that are going on out there like uh from place to place like uh going down to barbados you you realize that the problems with fisheries out there are more um like local guys that just you know aren't as educated on their like spear fishermen who go out every day they they target like a what they call chubs or parrotfish that are crucial for coral reefs, but they they don't know that they're crucial for coral reefs. And so what they do is they overfish these these chubs. And that's like the huge problem in Barbados. Whereas, you know, I know uh, in Bali, it's it's like, it's a much more complex situation. You know, there's uh, <laughs> like over overfishing of like the tuna fish that uh, a lot of people depend on out there. Um, just the whole... The whole fishery as itself is an entirely different bag, right? And um, what you realize by traveling is that you also realize how culture is so closely related to fisheries or, or to marine conservation, right? So um, in Bali, for example, the it's it's the economy there really really relies on tourism, right? So uh, there's an incentive to protect the the health of the natural you know environment there. And you you see that right now, like there's a lot of people taking uh, the government is really trying to push uh, solutions to plastic, which is a bit which is a big problem in Indonesia. Like uh, uh, that's that's what you see when you go out there. You know, uh, I I fortunately didn't see that much of the problem in in Bali, but I know on other islands of Indonesia, especially during the the rainy season. Yeah, during the rainy when it's a major problem. Yeah, exactly. Well, at least when it becomes a visibly apparent problem, it's always there, but. Yeah, exactly. But you you see, um, 
like that that that's that's the problem in Bali, you know what I mean? And, but but the the economy there is so reliant on tourism, whereas um, up you know in New York City or, or you know off the Northeast, it's people don't think of it, it, it like the economy doesn't completely revolve around tourism. It's it's a huge part of you know the the New York State economy or the Massachusetts economy is people going to Cape Cod, people going to Long Island. Uh, visiting the beaches in the summer but it's it's not as centrally focused as a place like bali and just i don't know you, you just see like so in, in my mind solutions uh, solutions to overfishing climate change and plastic which are in my opinion the three biggest forcings that humans have on the ocean um so the solutions need to work with the culture rather than against it or they, they need to like there's there's no uh one like cookie cutter solution for overfishing right there's no like one size fits all it's every place is entirely different and you see that while you travel and and so i yeah i i really do think that like solutions uh, you know if you're a marine scientist and you're studying uh you know whatever there's so many different things that you can study in our field but um whatever you're studying just keep that in mind that you know it what you're studying in your one location is entirely different than somewhere else in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that goes to understanding your audience, like circling way back to the beginning of this conversation is under the, those basic uh, levels of communication involve some sort of understanding of who you're speaking to, where you're going, the culture that you're interacting with. Um, And I actually was fortunate enough to be able to travel to Bali about three years ago now um, to get my certificate in international sustainability consulting, which is a mouthful, but through Virginia tech and, we worked with a bunch of groups there. And my big takeaway from Bali, Indonesia, all other island nations is that when you have a central government for a bunch of different islands, it's so hard to to make sure you're enforcing the laws. You can pass and my understanding is that Indonesia's government you know, they're passing laws to protect f- their fisheries and plastics. But in order to enforce those laws is a whole different story and a whole nother. I mean, that's like a whole nother podcast, another episode. Oh, yeah. um, so it comes with its own set of really complex challenges between the fisheries, waste management. I mean, where do you put all of your waste when you are a, a small island? Yeah. You know, you have to ship that somewhere else, most likely. And then you have people that are stopped, you know, like what we just heard with China is no longer accepting um, other people's yeah. waste, which I don't blame them for. But, um, you know, so there's everywhere you go is going to have its own unique set of environmental challenges. Yeah. And and just to add on that real quick, um, when it comes to community-based management for like of fisheries, right? One thing that I find is very effective uh, that I've seen in studies is that when you give these jobs of like enforcement to local people who like were fishermen or are, you know, are, are part of this small community, that's how they're really effective at, you know, uh, enforcing some of the, these regulations is, is by giving those jobs to the locals. You know what I mean? Not It's all about the messenger. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, plus on, on a related note. Um, I mean, how are you going to tell some people, some people in these places rely on fishing every single day to feed their family? How are you as like a privileged white person from America or a Westerner going to come in and tell people that they can't do that, even though that is the science and that's really, you know, where 
yeah. where we need some help. But yeah. you know, it's it's complex. Well, yeah, basically. You, you, so yeah. What you what you do is you you go down there, you you help educate some some of the locals and get them to be the messenger. That's that's really like what you what you do there. I think. Absolutely. Um, so because I like to end on a more uplifting <laughs> note, um, what are you hopeful for moving forward? What am I hopeful for? I think that now more than ever, any like no matter what your profession is, you have an opportunity to become involved in marine conservation. Whether you're a businessman, whether you're an artist, whether you're a biologist, a chemist, a physicist, um, you know, uh, a teacher, you know, really anything. Like whatever your passion is and your profession is, you can find a way to incorporate that into marine conservation, whether it's uh, through a job, you know, th- there are job applications out there that, you know, are, are looking for people who have these unique perspectives or, you know, maybe starting your own, you know, side business or just volunteering in your own time. Anyone nowadays, you know, uh, all these opportunities are available, you know, on our site, on social media, like all you have to do is look. And it's so easy nowadays to look and all the information is right there. So I think that's that's what makes me hopeful is that really anyone can get out there and make a difference, you know. And uh, unfortunately, uh, to get a little bit negative here, though, though, he always has to. You wanted to end on a positive (laughs) note, but I'm not going to let you. No, no. I mean, yeah. (laughs) But um, no, no, I I, like you have to understand that the world is going to be a different place in the next 20, 30, 40 years because, you know, we're, we're past irreversible climate change, right? Uh, we've we've affected our oceans in so many different ways, but there's still, uh, like Sylvia Earle says, there's still 20% of the big species left to save. You know what I mean? There's still uh, coral reefs out there that you know uh, they might not be able to survive in the way that they are right now in the future, but there is a future for them. We we just have to adapt to you know and, and figure out what that future is. So I I do think that a people you know I have faith in people. People have more of an ability now to get involved than they ever have before. And B, you know, the future might be different, but we still have time if we act right now to adapt to it and to to just make sure that our oceans are still intact, that, you know, that 20% that's still there, maybe we give that a chance to rebound. You know what I mean? There, there is still hope as long as there is still life. And that's that's uh, pretty much the message that yeah. I would probably Sustainability is a thread that can be woven through every single thing that you do in your life. Um, and just think about what kind of future do you want to live in? Yeah, exactly. What do you want to leave take, for? Take some steps, no matter how big or small. Yep. I know. I absolutely entirely agree. Like any, anyone can make a difference and anyone should make a difference. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what, you know, our, our organization and a lot of other organizations out there are trying to do right now. So uh, what advice do you have for listeners that may be trying to get into this field? Maybe they're currently working in this field or they're longtime veterans. Yeah, definitely. So I, I personally, this is a challenge. I want to see anyone, individual, not-for-profit, anyone pick this up. I want to see a symbol for overfishing or climate change like they're, like the plastic straw is for plastic pollution. I think back in the day, you know, dolphin safe tuna, that was like a big push for over against overfishing and to educate the public on that. But I really think that overfishing and climate change are the two biggest problems right now. Not to underscore plastic pollution, but I think someone needs to step up and address that. So I would love to see someone come up with some kind of symbol, some kind of call to action that really resonates with everyone across the world on 
really overfishing climate change. That's that's what I would like to see um, going forward. And I challenge anyone. I, w- I would love to see it. <laughs> Brian's throwing down the gauntlet. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is actually something new that I'm trying out in this episode. And um, I'm putting you on the spot. But I'm, I'm, I've been sitting here peppering you with questions. I want to give um, my guests an opportunity to ask me a question. Um if you have one, I will yeah. not be offended if you don't, but I figure it's nice to switch roles um, and put you in my seat for a second. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I actually, I do have a question. Um, so uh, I find it interesting because uh, when, it, when it comes to plastic pollution, right, like people can relate to that because they feel like they can change things in their everyday life, right? And they can like physically do something about it, right? But when I, when I feel like, and you're an expert in policy, you know, national ocean policy, what can like when it comes to policy and like government in the United States or you know across the world people feel kind of helpless you know what I mean they feel like they can get stuck in whatever you know regime like or whatever uh, leadership is in place what can people do at, you know at home or every day in terms of getting involved in marine policy mm-hmm. like what's an action that they can do sure so I think first and foremost um, you saw this with the midterm elections that just happened voting. Yeah. I mean, we flipped the house for the Democrats. That's um, really impressive. And that's all due to people going out and realizing their own power that they wield as a voter, um, realizing that your representatives and your members of Congress work for you, your tax dollars pay them. Um, and so through my day job with the American Literal Society, with running the Healthy Oceans Coalition, we are focused um, so intensively on fostering a grassroots movement to be involved with federal ocean policy. Um, So people on the ground, anybody from an individual concerned citizen all the way up to the really large conservation groups can be involved in the work that we do because we exist really solely to help people realize their own power that they have as an individual and how powerful their voice is. Um, And I know that it can be really scary the first time that you reach out to your member of Congress's office. um, And sometimes they're not the best about being responsive. Um, But being persistent, sending an email, making a phone call, those things are really easy and will help get your agenda, whatever you care about, on your representative's radar so that when they go to make decisions and vote on things and fund things, um, making sure that they're aware of what you care about and what their voters value, it's huge. Um, And then if you are able to go in and have a meeting with your member of Congress telling personal stories, I think that that if you ever get face to face with a member of Congress or a decision maker, relate those policy issues and those laws to your daily life. Tell a story because those are things that they're going to remember. That's really good advice. Thank you. Yeah. No, no, that's true. The, the personal <laughs> stories really resonate. I mean, I've I've been with you to you know uh, talk to some of the Massachusetts state um, legislation, and and that's that's what they seem to really like uh, understand is you know when we talked about like the endangered uh, North Atlantic right whale, um, they you know they they just understood that you know uh, people enjoy seeing these these whales. They uh, it's it's like a part of New England. You know what I mean? And when you tell that like personal story that connects you to it, that's what they really. You know, understand and and take home. So I, I agree. That's that's a really good point. Thanks. Yeah, people have the power. Get out there, vote. 
Um, if you're interested in joining the Healthy Oceans Coalition, I'll give a plug for my own work. <laughs> yeah, nice. uh, HealthyOceansCoalition.org. Um, reach out to me and we would love to have you join. Um, so, Brian, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This was an awesome conversation. Um, I hope the listeners enjoyed it and, and are so inspired to go out Um Maybe stop smoking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just you know, be, be conscious in your everyday life. And you yeah, know. and if you do, you know, I'm not here really to tell you what to do. But if if you do keep smoking, find a receptacle. That's yeah, recycle it. Yeah, recycle yeah. your cigarette butt. Be the, be the change that you want to see in the world. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and on that like positive, positive <laughs> a little bit. You know, yeah. get get out there. Also, I would like to say, get out there and experience the ocean once a week, or like get get outside. Once a week, go catch a wave. Get as passionate about you know surfing yeah. in the ocean as I am. Like go fishing. I don't know. Just get get or if out. If you there. live in the middle of the country, just get outside. Yeah, get inspired. Go take a walk. Yeah, exactly. Go take a walk. Experience nature. Remind yourself why it's so worth protecting. Mm-hmm. Um, I also would like to take the time to thank the listeners. Um, if you like what you heard here. Um, you can subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network uh, wherever you listen to podcasts um, to get this show and other outstanding podcasts by subject matter experts that are focused on our shorelines. And be sure to like the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today on Facebook, um, because for now, this is where you can give us feedback on our shows and interact with all of the hosts. Um, I think it is a goal of ours to get to a point where our website will have that function. But um, as you all are aware of by now, we are a new network. So um, social media is a great place to interact with us. Um, And then thank you to my friend Devin Shaw for his technical assistance today and Lex Media out in the beautiful Lexington, Massachusetts, um, for allowing us to use their um, really amazing podcast studio.